welcome to the bookcase, or welcome back to the bookcase, or at least I hope that's the case. Many cases in that sentence. I am Kate Gibson. And I'm Charlie Gibson, and we're delighted to bring you another episode of the bookcase for your listening and dancing pleasure. Uh, As always, we're glad you could join us. And we have a really an interesting author this time to bring you whose work you know, but you don't know it. He is primarily a screenwriter or has been through his career, David Kep by name, K-O-E-P-P, and his new book is Aurora. How would you describe it, Kate? Well, first of all, I love that we're doing this for your dancing pleasure because I will be beatboxing later. Secondly, he does huge, epic screenplays. He's done Spider-Man. He did Jurassic Park. He is one of the most commercially successful screenwriters in Hollywood. So the idea that he'd want to write a novel at all is... I'm thankful for it because I love his work, but it's surprising. But this book is really, I would say, apocalyptic in nature. It's about the possibility of a solar flare being so big that it knocks out power and connectivity and communication around the entire earth. And it talks about how people deal with that. And it's a thriller. And I loved it. I'm so excited we're talking about a thriller on today's show. It's it's basically my favorite genre. And I love this book. I could not put it down. I read it in 24 hours. Well, and we've given it to others who have also liked it and read it very quickly. It's a quick read, but it's very good. But you point out it's an apocalyptic novel. And some of his movies have been a sort of apocalyptic to Jurassic Park, etc. This all started, I think, as we talk about with Andromeda Strain that Michael Crichton wrote, and there's a lot of novels like this. But what really interested me is that people know his work from those movies, but they may not know his name, that he did write the first two Jurassic Park movies, and he has worked on Spider-Man, and he has worked on other big movies. So why would he go back and write a novel? That was what really intrigued me. Why, if you've been this successful, when you've when your movies have sold, I think I saw almost two and a half billion dollars worth of tickets that's billion with a b not m so why would you go back and write a novel i just was interested in how the disciplines differed and how you convey different emotions and different thoughts through a novel or through a screenplay because you can't do it all with dialogue you have to be very sparse in your dialogue in a movie so i was really interested in those questions why he would do it how the as i say how the disciplines differ And if you're writing a novel as somebody who is basically in the business of screenplays, are you thinking all the time, oh, this will be a good scene. Oh, maybe we could do this and picturing your novel as a movie. And of course, in the course of the conversation, we found out Aurora is going to be a movie at some point. I'm excited about who's directing it. Catherine Bigelow, a talented director who did Hurt Locker and won an Oscar for it, is going to be directing Aurora. And I think she's going to be a really fun person to put at the helm. I think to address what you're saying before we get into the interview, and I want to talk about this more when we talk about what we've learned. Screenwriting in some ways, I think, is a very particular art. One of the cardinal rules of screenwriting is that you're not supposed to tell the actor how to feel, or you're not supposed to tell the director how to direct but you're supposed to give them hints as to all of those things. So I think in some ways it must be somewhat difficult to not be able to explore the way a character feels by writing it all out when you're a screenwriter. And so I think these books provided him a tremendous amount of freedom. As you pointed out, this one involves a huge solar flare that bursts out from the sun and comes toward the earth. 
This actually happened, as he tells you in the book, in I think 1832 or something, and it became known as the Carrington Effect. It could happen. This is something that could happen. And obviously in 1832, we weren't as, if that's the right year, I don't have the book in front of me, we weren't as dependent upon electricity and interconnectivity and all of that and computers and phone systems weren't as extensive, et cetera, et cetera. So if it happened again, it would have a much more devastating effect. The book raises the possibility that it could happen again. As he says in the book, it's not a question of if, it could be a question of when, because the sun is always emitting these giant solar flares. Anyway, these ones come to Earth. There are people who are ready for it, who are survivalists, who are prepared for a disaster, and there are people who aren't. And that's the basis of his novel. So our conversation with David Kep, screenwriter and novel author. David Kep, it is wonderful to have you in the bookcase, and I'm really excited to have you here because you're really our first thriller writer, and it's a genre I can't wait to explore in this podcast because it's my favorite. So my first question for you is, you've written a novel about something threatening the world before COVID, and now you've written a novel about something threatening the world after COVID. How did it change the way that you looked at potential world-threatening events and how to write about them. That's very interesting because it did change it completely. My first book, which was three years ago, was about a fungus that causes all sorts of problems. And it was a little more fun in games. And I wanted this one to be a bit more, well, it had to reflect our COVID experience because we'd all changed a bit in the years since then. And I was right, I had the idea prior to COVID and I told my editor and everyone was pleased and it was, you know, good to go. But then as soon as it hit and we went into lockdown and I was about to start the book, I called and said, I have to completely reconceive this because everything is different now. We've all had this worldwide experience where our lives changed completely and we had to adjust to that. And I think the characters in the book have to reflect it because you see there's, there's two kinds of art that comes out now. Either it makes one of two decisions. We either acknowledge there was COVID in the world and treat our characters, think our characters through as people that went through this, or we pretend we live in a world where there never was. And I didn't want to do the latter. So I found as I worked on the book, it gave a certain ruefulness to the characters, but also um, they were just deeper people, as I think we all are, because we had this intense experience and I wanted to see some of the positive things that came out of that as well. Obviously, there was a great deal of suffering and loss of life, but there were also positive experiences we all had. I was going to say, Aurora ends with almost a sense of optimism. I don't want to call it a happy ending, but humanity survives and humanity, in a way, takes care of each other. I mean, are you feeling more optimistic about potential world-ending events after the pandemic, I guess is what I'm asking. I feel both simultaneously. I think pessimism is easy because world events often support that viewpoint. And the behavior of humans can be very disappointing. Optimism is a choice. We choose that we're going to be optimistic, and we choose to see an optimistic future. And I wanted to represent both of those. So the book has two main characters who are siblings, one of whom is super prepared for any disaster scenario that might occur, and the other is whose life is a mess, not at all prepared. And I wanted to see if their fortunes could change over the course of the movie and one of the person who's unprepared develops 
an inner strength and sense of community she didn't know she had. And the guy who thought he could control the world and could until that point uh, can't, and it falls apart. So I had an experience during COVID with my family that was difficult, but at times beautiful. And we got to know our neighbors in ways we hadn't before, and we really value them. In fact, I thank them in the acknowledgments at the end of the book just for being comforting and reassuring people to live near during that time. So I think there is grounds for optimism. It's probably unfair to characterize a book to the author, but in cold storage, there's a lot of humor that you bring to the story. And I found there was less so in Aurora, and I wondered if you felt sort of sobered by what had happened during Aurora and therefore treated the potential disaster that triggers the book more seriously. There's no question. COVID took some of the gleeful mayhem out of out of my spirit at, at that point. Cold storage, there is a lot of humor. That was one of the things I enjoyed most about it. It was easy to be a wise ass in the writing and to have fun with this this deadly fungus. But Aurora's premise seemed immediately more believable, in part because it has happened, last time being 1859, a major solar eruption that shuts down the Earth's electrical systems. It will happen again. There are government reports to read about whether or not we're prepared for this. I'll summarize them for you. We're not. (laughs) It just wasn't as much. The macabre fun wasn't to be had. So I think I still managed to find attempts at humor because I like to try to be funny. And it's quite easy to poke fun at billionaires. So (laughs) there was some, but you're right, not nearly as much because the world had changed a bit. It's an interesting genre. I guess I would put it in the category of apocalyptic fiction which is always fun. I mean, I I think the first one I ever read was Andromeda Strain, and there have been many since. But in this instance, you're talking about a fungus in cold storage, which can threaten the country, threaten the world. And then in this one, which, which strikes me as actually something that's very possible, which is this massive amount of solar flares that basically breaks down all the electrical grids are potentially in the world and how we would bear up under that kind of a thing. But in each case, in the first chapters, you have to set out what is your premise and how this kind of a disaster could really affect the world. You must have had to do a fair bit of research in each of those cases to figure out how a fungus could threaten the world. And then what what do you call them? Coronal mass ejections could paralyze us by knocking out all of our power. So That must have required, I would suspect, a fair bit of research. It does. I'm glad you mentioned Michael Crichton, who's sort of the gold standard of plausible science fiction premises. And of course, Jurassic Park is his most famous. And I find that what I've always liked about his work is that when the scientific premise is believably expressed and you think, yeah, that's plausible, I could see that happening. All the rest of the story works better. The suspension of disbelief required by the audience is much less and the research is, has become quite easy to do. I want to ask you about screenwriting and novel writing. You are and have had tremendous success as a screenwriter. This is your second novel. I think of novels as depending on descriptive powers, and I think of screenwriting as dependent upon the ability to write good dialogue. So I'm wondering... When you come to the novel, what's the difference in your mind in the two disciplines? They are vastly different. In the 30 years I've been doing it, the shortest way I've heard it expressed is that movies are about what people say and do, 
and books are about what people think and feel. And what I found intoxicating about writing a book, and I wrote my first novel after 30 years of screenwriting, is that I could suddenly talk about what was in a character's mind. And I could talk about what they feel, and I could digress for two or three pages about their high school chemistry teacher. And those are things you just can't do in movies. You have to find a way to express something either verbally, as you point out with dialogue, or even better, visually. A way to tell that piece of character detail or story with images. And that's not something you have to worry about in a book. You get to go on at length, have full access to a character's inner thoughts, and it's quite freeing. Screenwriting is a very particular craft, and it's tricky for people to do it. That's why there's a limited number of people who can write screenplays well, because it's not regular writing. It's writing and visualizing a movie, and those are different things. So when you write a novel coming from your screenwriting background, is it always in the back of your mind? How is this going to translate to a screenplay? Well, I wonder if you're actually playing the movie in your mind while you're writing it. Yes and no. A few decades of screenwriting ingrains certain impulses and techniques. And so it's very hard to just put it aside and not even think about that. But I do try to do that because I'm writing a book, not a movie, and it must succeed as a book, not a movie. However, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't get to the point where I am writing the screenplay and I've got a few thoughts that have built up from when I was writing it. So I'm, I'm thinking it as I go, but I'm trying hard not to <laughs> because uh, the, the virtues of books and movies are very different. You made an interesting distinction, which I wrote down. I think it's really interesting that screenwriting is what people say and do and novel writing is what they think and feel. I think it's a really interesting way to define it, which is harder. Screenwriting is harder. Because you have to, can I digress and tell a Billy Wilder story? Please. It's one of my favorites. Billy Wilder, of course, the legendary Hollywood director of Some Like It Hot, Sunset Boulevard, Double Indemnity, a million other. As the story goes, and who knows whether it's true or not, doesn't matter if it is. A writer was working with him and Wilder needed a scene for a middle-aged couple to show that their marriage has gone stale. And so the writer wrote a scene. He said, and it needs to be in and around the apartment building because that's where I can shoot. So the writer started with two or three pages of dialogue in the apartment. They were having some tiff. They get in the they leave the apartment to go out for the night. They get in the elevator. They ride down. They're arguing all the way down in the elevator. They get out to the street. They were about to get in a taxi, but the argument finishes and they stop talking to each other and get in the taxi. So like five or six pages of, you know, marital strife stuff. And he gives it to Wilder. He says, no, 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 no. This is all wrong. This is all wrong. And he rewrites the scene. So they come out of their apartment. They're not speaking. They get in the elevator. Still not speaking. They start to ride down the guy. It's 1948. So the guy's wearing a hat. Halfway down to the lobby, the elevator stops. Doors open and an attractive woman in her 20s gets into the elevator the guy takes off his hat when she gets in and his wife just glares at him and the elevator doors close. He did it. And he did it without a word spoken, all images. And you both chuckled because it's a great express. We get in a moment and with an image, this wonderful expression of the whole of their relationship. 
And that those are hard to come up with. It's easier to write the five pages of them arguing. You can do it in a book or a movie or wherever. But to come up with the succinct visual expression, that, that's not easy. We talked to Niall Williams, who has written a wonderful book, an Irish writer, a wonderful book called This is Happiness. He's been writing novels for a while now. But he also wrote a couple of plays that were played at the Abbey Theater. The first one, he said, was a disaster. And he stopped writing plays because he said it is so much harder. Why? Because he said you have an image of your play, you hand it to a director who has an image, who then hands it to the actors who have an image. And he said when it comes out on the stage, it may not be what you wanted. And he said when a play really works, it's something of a miracle because it's gone through all of those hands. Do you find the same frustration, I guess, at times, or the same questioning when you write a screenplay, as opposed to a novel, which is just yours? Yes, <laughs> is, the, <laughs> is the short answer. Um, it's absolutely frustrating, because you write a script and you see it, your first job is see this movie completely in your head. And so you do, you picture it very clearly in your mind. And after a draft or two, you share it with someone else. Because it's a movie that someone else usually is in a position of some influence over it, whether it's a director or a studio you know, producer. And they're going to have views because they saw the film in their head, too, when they asked you to write it. And it's not what you wrote. Much of it is what you wrote, maybe, if you're lucky, but not all of it. And that process just repeats. If the movie goes on toward production, more and more people are coming in. And understandably, you've asked them for tens of millions of dollars. And then actors come in, and actors are not known for not having opinions. <laughs> After about the third draft of a screenplay, I've learned to say a little private goodbye. It was mine, and now it's ours. And at some point, it must become the director's. Very clearly, it's theirs. And if you don't like that, you should not get involved with writing screenplays. The difference in writing a novel is extraordinary. It's yours. The process of getting notes on it is very, they're very genteel. After my first novel, I got notes from my editor about the draft. And he was so polite, and I was just taken aback. Everything was premised with, you know, I wonder if, and see what you think. <laughs> and of course, of course, in the end, you should do whatever you want. But what if, and he pitched something so small, but with such care. And I, I laughed and I said, I'm sorry, you, you don't know what I've been through for the, for the last <laughs> couple of decades. I feel that in movies, you are not so much collaborated with as collaborated upon. <laughs> and it can be tough. And I've been lucky to work with some really great directors. I've had them do versions of my scripts that are far better as a film than they were as a script. But I've also had the opposite experience. And it is something you have to get used to. Well, I wanted to ask you, because you are commercially one of the most successful screenwriters. I mean, when you said, OK, I think I'm going to write a novel, I guess. How many people told you you were crazy? How many people sucked through their teeth? Like, what was the reaction of the folks surrounding you? And you said, you know, I, I think I'm going to write a novel this time. I knew enough not to tell anyone. <laughs> so it, and that was part of the joy of it, is that I was writing it on my own. Nobody knew, no one cared. No one was waiting for it. No one was interested. And so the days were really peaceful. It was it's just sort of pure, go into your office and sit down and make stuff up. 
which is my favorite part of the process. Halfway through, my agent did ask, so what exactly are you up to? Because he's noticing the, you know, silence. <laughs> uh, and I said, well, I'm writing a book. And there was a pause. And he said, with the wisdom of someone who's been doing this for a while, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> because at that point, what are you going to do? And then happily, I was able to sell it. It's an exciting time right now. If you talked to me five years ago, I would have been quite worried about the future of storytelling and the movie business in particular. But there are so many different ways and places to tell your story now that there's enormous appetite for what is sometimes called content. I prefer stories. There's such an appetite for it that the more different ways you can express yourself and get stuff out there, the better. And the more you open up your own chances as opposed to waiting for someone else to come give you an opportunity. I want to follow up with that. Why? Why were you worried about storytelling five years ago? I was worried about my medium in particular. It seemed that streaming was going to kill theatrical movie going. And then it seemed the pandemic was going to come in and finish the job. But it hasn't because we like going to movies and I do like going out to see movies. I also love seeing them on my big TV in the den. I've had great experiences watching movies there. But I was worried then because streaming seemed like such a juggernaut and everything seemed to be going so much in the direction of series television as opposed to a contained thing like a feature film. And also because it's in my nature to worry and panic. I'm a writer. <laughs> Given the distinction, an interesting distinction that you made between writing for the screen and writing for a novel, which do you find more rewarding? Financially or creatively? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, creatively a book is, it's hard to top. You had the idea, you worked on it privately. It's all of what was represented in your mind and there it is in perpetuity. You can pick it up and look at it. It's the same as it was 10 years ago. And it's the whole experience. However, it's lonely. Well, we will be very interested to see how Cold Storage and Aurora translate to movies. But they're both fun reads. They are both apocalyptic fiction. It is a genre that you have got well well in hand and we really appreciate talking to you david it's been a pleasure well thank you both it's great to be here thanks for having me hey i'm andy mitchell a new york times best-selling author and i'm sabrina kohlberg a morning television producer we're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. David Cap, let's see how he does with our rapid-fire questions. Most influential book in your life, David? Mm, that is, I'm going to say The Sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut, which is not his best book, but it's the first one I picked up off the shelf when I was 16 at Walden Books, and it hit me like a thunderbolt, and then I've read everything else he's ever written twice. Do you spend more time reading or writing? 
writing because when I'm writing, I can't read a book. It'll get in my head and rattle around and ruin everything. You have to be fully focused. What's your favorite time to read? Morning. Morning with a coffee is great. Bed is also nice, but I tend to fall asleep and have to go back five pages the next day. Favorite book to read to your kids? I loved a book called That's Good, That's Bad. And I've had four kids, so I've read this book a lot. It starts with something seems very good, and then you say, but no, that's bad. And then it talks about why it's bad. And then it turns out that it's good, actually, and it's really fun. And I'm a frustrated performer, so I like showing off with that one. The most revered book that you read that you didn't like and are sorry you read it. <laughs> and I'm sorry I read it. It's You can't say this out loud. <laughs> I don't like The Sun Also Rises. It's it's great, <laughs> but I don't like it. I don't know. That's, that's my confession. Your guiltiest reading pleasure? Anything on the internet. It's a real problem. There's nonsense. Our attention spans have been ruined. It destroys thoughtful writing and thinking, and I'm as addicted to it as everybody else. And the question that we stole from Stephen Colbert, but I think is always very incisive. In five words, David, in five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? As lovely as the rest. Woo! Very nice. I've been lucky and blessed, and I, boy, I hope it continues. So, Kate, what did you take away from our conversation with David Kemp? A couple of things. I always take away a few things. So let me go off on my monologue for a little bit. First of all, I think it's fascinating, again, the way that COVID changed the way he feels about big incidents on this planet. I think he's arguing that, man, we probably should be more prepared for something like this since we went through COVID and that we're not. But I also think he's saying that the characters that are really prepared, the survivalists, the brother, he doesn't come out a heck of a lot better than the woman, the main character, whose life is a mess. And I think that's interesting. Can you really prepare for a global event that is this large? Are we prepared as a country infrastructure-wise? No, probably not. I also just think he did a great job when he told that Billy Wilder story about illustrating what I was talking about before, about screenwriters having to show the audience things rather than telling them things. And I think that's probably why novel writing was so tempting for him. And then the last thing I took away that I love is my first job outside of college were in the movie industry. And a lot of people in the movie industry, God love all of you out there, are a little crazy. And David Kemp, I thought, came across as sort of a, I don't know, I mean, I think probably in the movie business, he would be considered sort of a normie. I really liked that. I enjoyed sitting down and listening to his literary perspective on why he found these novels so fun and how he wrote them. So, all right, that's my my huge monologue. What did you think? Well, there's nothing left for me to say. <laughs> your, and your, monolo- <laughs> your, your monologue took it all no i a couple of things i agree with you i hadn't thought about that but he is uh he's very down to earth he's married to a woman who used to work for good morning america which makes him okay in my book the thing that i thought was really interesting is when i was reading it you're more interested in the plot and the book itself, I came away really interested in the conversation because I wanted to talk about the difference in disciplines of novel writing and screenwriting. And I thought that a novel depends on description and a screenplay depends on dialogue. I thought he said it so much better that a screenwriter 
depends on what you say and do. And a novel depends on feelings and on what you think yes. and feel, yes. as opposed to the screenwriter that see and do. I thought that was a really interesting distinction. And he does both very well. The novel is really compelling, and I like it. So Aurora is the book. If you get a chance to read it, I would recommend it. I think it's worth saying, too, that I've read a lot of thrillers. I've read a lot of thrillers, and some of them are atrociously bad. And because so many of them are about story, 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 story. And the dialogue is something they kind of fit in between to give a break in the story. The dialogue in Aurora is really fun. It's snappy. It's quick. It's intelligent. The characters have their own distinct personalities. The dialogue is not an afterthought. And I think that's one of the reasons that Aurora really stood out for me. It's interesting. In the first chapter, he lays out the science. And I thought maybe this is going to be a little complex. I'm not a scientist. I didn't understand all of it. But I did get the idea it was a huge solar flare and it was going to it was gonna wreak some <laughs> havoc with the world. But he'd obviously done a lot of research and it was somewhat technical. And I thought maybe you have to sort of wade through the first chapter to get to the to get to the good stuff. I liked it all the way through. I uh, looked at that first chapter as sort of dun 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 like the first chapter is here's what's coming. Yeah, yeah. And it was a great setup for the rest of the book. So let's turn to our independent bookstore for the week. It is Interabang, which is an interesting name. I-N-T-E-R-A-B-A-N-G. It's a bookstore very prominent in Dallas. The owner of the store is Nancy Perot, a name that is not unknown in Texas. And it's been around for five years. And they have survived some calamities that maybe even would make a good plot for a David Kep book um, <laughs> because they have uh, they've gone through a lot and they have survived and they're doing well and it's certainly worth talking to Nancy Perot. Here's our conversation. Nancy Perot, good to have you with us in Terrabang, which is such an intriguing name for a bookstore. I-N-T-E-R-A-B-A-N-G. There's got to be a story behind that. There is a story behind that. And Interabang is an actual word. It was a punctuation mark that was invented in the 1960s by an ad man in New York City. And it's the combination of a question mark and an exclamation point together. And journalism majors tend to know this word, but we thought it represented everything a bookstore is supposed to deliver, you know, curiosity and discovery. And also book lovers and readers and authors typically like quirky words. And so anyway, it really has played very well with our authors and customers. First of all, I'm really excited about your name, because as far as I'm concerned, that should be how I describe the way I end every single sentence that I say. Second of all, I don't believe your story. I think you just named it that way because it's fun to say. Third of all, congratulations on your fifth anniversary. You were founded in 2017. Tell us a little bit about the hiccup in the middle of your bookstore life. Oh, my gosh. Well, we founded it in the summer of 2017, and things were going so well. All the independent bookstores in Dallas had actually closed over the last many years. And so there was great excitement that another one was opening again. So things went really well for the first two years. And then the tornado of October 2019, the bookstore was directly in the path, that whole neighborhood. And destroyed. I mean, there was not one salvageable book. It was really, <laughs> there's some amazing pictures and it was declared a FEMA emergency, you know, situation. So nobody, we could never even go back in there. So we ended up quickly regrouping, moving to a new location on Lover's Lane, 
where it's a smaller store, but it's really in a wonderful neighborhood. The old one was a great location, too, but this has worked well. And a lot of traffic, a lot of foot traffic, a lot of families and kids. And so it's, it's worked well. We've managed to rise back. You didn't say one waterlogged book? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, we had that and then the pandemic headwinds and then there was the flood and the great freeze in Dallas a couple of years ago. So we feel like we've had all kinds of natural disasters come at us, but, but somehow we keep pushing through. One of the things that fascinates us are regional writers. And Texas obviously has its share. Which ones do your readers find most appealing? And what regional writers do you particularly like? You know, that is such a great question. And that really is one of the greatest joys, I think, is supporting our regional authors. We have a lot of great authors in Dallas. When I mentioned Laura Wilson, who is also a photographer, coming out with a great new book on authors, Pulitzer Prize winning, outstanding authors. And she's traveled, you know, for over the last several years and taken wonderful photos of them. And she's a renowned photographer. And then we have Ben Fountain is a local author who's very well known. Nancy Chernin is a children's author who's very, very well known, who's here in Dallas. And yet we do have a lot of people traveling up from Austin and Houston. So Texas is really a very literary state. We've loved supporting our local authors. The daughter of Stanley Marcus, the founder of Neiman Marcus, has just written a book about that family history that was really well received. And I think that's a great joy to be able to support the local authors. That's what an independent bookstore can do really well, is really encourage readership, lots of events, and just bring a lot of notoriety to those local authors. So we've got really talented ones here. Kate always points out to our independent booksellers that you're not in the business to get rich. So what is the reward that you most derive from having Bank? You're right. You don't go into it to be rich, but this had to be a business that really was self-sustaining and really did work. And I'm happy to say it really does work. What I find most satisfying, I think, is really reaching into the community bringing the authors to Dallas, what that does for enriching literacy in the city is just deeply satisfying. And I think, too, we support so many big events. For instance, John Meacham is coming, the historian, in December, and we are supporting all the book sales for that big event. And so there are a lot of big major authors that come to town, and we get to be a part of helping all of those events happen. But I think just that the day-to-day, the conversations that happen around books, the shared love and passion that people have for books, that's really the greatest satisfaction, I'd say. Was there a book or a bookstore that bit you? When did you get bitten by the bug that said, I want to be a bookseller? I've always loved books. You know, I grew up in a great family of readers and my mother always you know made sure that we had lots of books in our hands and took us to the public library and then I was an English major in college I went to Vanderbilt and that's a really terrific English department there that's been very famous for many many decades for their southern writers and so I've just always valued the written word and I've loved books and I've always loved bookstores I briefly lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and of course, there just is a bookstore on every corner there. And just every city where I go, I just love the independent bookstores. And as I said, one by one in Dallas, they closed. And I had been wanting to do this for, I mean, really, oh, I'd say 30 years. I'd always wanted to, you know, I thought one day I'd love to have a bookstore. Everything came to be in the timing in my life came together about five years ago, and it was like, okay, be careful what you wish for, because now this is really (laughs) And it really, it has been very, very satisfying. A lot of work. And if I came in right now and said, Nancy, what do I have to read? 
What would you put in my hand? I absolutely loved River of the Gods about the era of Great British exploration in the 1840s and 50s when they were trying to find the headwaters of the Nile. And that is just a fabulous book that I loved. I heard your podcast on Remarkably Bright Creatures. I loved that book. I just oh, great. Oh, enchanting. So a stack is so high next to my bed. <laughs> but I would tell you to read The River of the Gods. And gosh, there's so many interesting, wonderful ones right now. I'm also... I've heard that chemistry lessons is just terrific about a woman who was a chemist and couldn't get a job and turned her focus to cooking in the 50s. Lessons in Chemistry, I believe, was a Good Morning America book club pick, as a matter of fact. And I think it was written by a Gusman, I think is the name of the author. We yeah. just had her Diaz in the store, too. That's a big part of what we do are our author events. And we've had some fabulous authors. And of course, they didn't travel during the pandemic, but now they're coming back again. And that's really exciting. One of the questions we ask our authors, and I'm curious because you have grown kids now, what's your favorite book to read to your kids when they were little? I had four boys, four wonderful boys, and they're all grown now, and they're all great readers, I'm happy to report. And I remember reading The Secret Garden to them, and I think a lot of people think of that as a girl's book. I loved that. I also loved The Adventures of Lord Shackleton. There was a young adult book that I read to them, and that was one of the most riveting books, that, and I read it to each of them. And of course, with my oldest son, the whole Harry Potter series had just started, so we got to read those. A friend brought us the book from England, and we just couldn't believe that book, and then we just wait. And it, the perfect thing about that is he grew up just along with the release of the books. And so that was just a great joy. And then my youngest son, who's still in college now, he, uh, oh gosh, we love the whole Artemis Fowl series. There were just just so many wonderful children's literature. I could go on and on about I, I have to say, like, I'm drooling a little bit because I have a little boy and he's wonderful and he's three. And the books he likes right now God love the authors. They're just terrible. I'm reading so many books about cranes and fire engines and police cars. And here's the sound the police car makes. And I'm reading so much about vehicles. And, and, dinosaurs. And, dino- and dinosaurs. And dinosaurs and vehicles and sharks. Yeah. Uh-huh. All those little boy things. Oh, yeah. I knew every dinosaur and every backhoe from an excavator. I know I get it. I keep trying to buy him fiction. Like I keep going, make way for ducklings. And he's like, no, cranes. And I'm like, cranes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our oldest grandson carried Curious George and a monkey around forever. We still have those Curious Georges. And then, too, but because I had all these boys, I also wanted to make sure that they read the, what I, you know, more, maybe would have thought of more for literature for girls like Pippi Longstocking. They loved Pippi Longstocking. And, I even read Madeline and all those. As they get a little bit older, then you can get into those series with them. They're just great. Nancy Perot, when you look at her favorite books on their website, All the Light We Cannot See, Belcanto Cutting for Stone, you know right away she has wonderful taste in books, and she will be delighted to put some of those books in your hands. Nancy Perot from Interabang, question mark plus exclamation point equals Interabang. You'll find it on Lover's Lane in Dallas, Texas. Stop on by. Nancy Perot, thank you. Thank you. I'm honored to be with you both. Thank you. Nancy Perot, 
at Intero Bang Books on Lover's Lane. I keep picturing her walking to her car at night and having to bang on steamed up windows and going, knock it off, get a room, knock it off. <laughs> but it sounds like uh, that's not what the Lover's Lane is at all. Also, I love that conversation because, as I said to Nancy, I am so looking forward to moving beyond the books about the cranes and the fire engines and the dinosaurs and the sharks. Not that those aren't great books. I just I'm looking forward to behaving, being able to do the Artemis Fowls and the Harry Potters and the Phantom Tollbooths with him. I'm so looking forward to fiction. To read to the kids. Well, Charlie went into fiction like right away. Jack is taking a little longer. He likes books about sharks, about dinosaurs, about trucks, about tractors, about fire engines. And um, there's only so much you can say about all this. And there are, all the sentences in those books are written with exclamation points. The fire truck goes to the fire. Yeah. You know, Tyrannosaurus Rex had teeth the size of bananas. I mean, it's just there's only so exciting that you can you can make that anyway. And next week, we are actually going to make a switch in genre a bit. Uh, we're going to be talking to Stuart Gibbs, who is uh, he's got the voice and he's got the understanding of kids who are what would you say, Kate, in the in the 9 to 13 category. Yeah. He's written so many different series of books. Uh, he's a wonderful children's author. He is one of my grandsons, uh, one of your nephew's favorite authors. Lang loves all the Stuart Gibbs books. And uh, so it will be an enjoyable conversation with him. So we're glad you danced along with us for the week. <laughs> and uh, we close, as always, with some final words from our principal interviewee, David Kapp. The Book Case is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. I read something when I was young. It's been extremely helpful every day of my writing process. Try to fall in love with the daily process of putting words on the screen. If you can do that, everything else will fall into shape.